0: Hello and welcome to The Word is Out, a mission-centric podcast featuring Dr. Alan Meenan, pastor and preacher and teacher of God's Word for over 40 years, and now the founder and faithful leader of a missions organization that reaches out to the world with the Word of God. The book of Hebrews. I've been looking forward to discussing this one with you, Alan.
1: (laughs) What has made you so interested in this book?
0: I you know it's just so different than the Pauline epistles it's so of course it just seems to stand apart in some way
1: yeah I think you've got that right it does stand apart it's very very different from any other book I think it's just got its own unique character
0: well fair warning to our listeners this is a rich and deep and challenging book is that fair to say Alan
1: I would say that may be an understatement. Um, It's certainly, certainly those things.
0: Well, so it's going to take us a little bit longer to get from one end of it to the other. But your time will be well spent. Of that, I am certain. So let's jump right in, Alan. Okay. First of all, I understand that for many people, the book of Hebrews is somewhat controversial and perhaps difficult to comprehend. Why is that?
1: Good question. Um, I think right from the get-go, we would say that uh, we're not sure who's written this book, for example. Mm-hmm. It certainly does not feel like the Apostle Paul. It's very different in style from his writing. We're not absolutely clear to whom it was written. We're not sure as to uh, when it was written. So, um, And these questions cannot be answered decisively. And so we surmise uh, clues from the text and make inferential conclusions, which may be interesting and helpful, but um, which fortunately don't impact the meaning of the text as such. Let me suggest, for example, you know, what what does the text tell us about the writer? Mm. Well, it tells us that he was probably Jewish. He declares God to be our father, for example. He speaks at length on the role of angels. He Quotes a lot from the Old Testament, in fact, many, many, many quotes from are allusions to the Old Testament. So we we think in all probability he was Jewish, maybe yeah. converted to the preaching of the apostles. Chapter two might give indication of that. Uh, he may have been accused of some wrongdoing. Chapter thirteen would indicate that. <laughs> he wishes to be restored to the readers. So what does that mean in chapter thirteen? Maybe maybe he was imprisoned, not able to meet with them. Uh, we're not you know not not entirely sure. Uh, but he seems well acquainted with these readers. You see that throughout the book, chapters two and five and six and ten and and so on. And he appears to be a companion to Timothy. So those are things we understand about the writer. I actually personally tend to think that perhaps the most likely candidate was Apollos, Hmm. uh, because Apollos was a kind of Greek philosopher and Jewish. So possibly he would be a candidate for that. And then what do we know about the readers? Well, it's likely written to Jewish readers, as implied by the the book's title, Um, and, and lots of references throughout the book would indicate that. They're evidently Christian and had been Christians for some time. They have experienced persecution and they've been publicly abused. They serve other Christians out of a spirit of love and they experience signs, wonders, miracles in chapter two. So we have some idea that the writer was Jewish, written to Jewish Christians who were undergoing persecution and certainly were tempted perhaps right. to renege on their christian faith to, to revert to judaism possibly hmm. so um yeah we're not given definitive details as to who wrote and to whom it was written but we glean from the text these kind of conclusions these inferences if you will Well, what are the issues that are addressed that are a cause for concern Probably problems that the readers faced. There was obviously some confusion about the role of angels, about the role of Moses. They were experiencing profound temptation. There was even a resistance to what the writer was saying. I mean, he makes that clear in chapter five. He he accuses them of, of immaturity um, <laughs> and, and tells them that they need to get back to you know first principles. They were unable to distinguish between good and evil, it seems, in chapter 5. They were sluggish in their faith in chapter 6. Uh, they kept reverting back to the Levitical code in the Old Testament, uh, chapter 7, 8, 9, 10, and so forth. They were embracing strange teachings, we we read in chapters 9 and again in 13. And in the face of persecution, they were growing weary and, and discouraged and faint-hearted, And and one would understand that. But in some degree, they were perhaps a little bitter in their response to the persecution, and became reluctant to confess Christ openly. Hmm. That seems to be the case in chapter 13, for example. So uh, those would be some of the major problems that, that the writer is addressing. It's a complex picture of these, of these Jewish readers. Hmm. Uh, is there a
0: central message or a key direction that the writer is taking us?
1: He takes us in many different directions. That's part of the complexity of the book. But but he calls his readers to a life of love. And I think that's one of the most okay. overarching and beautiful things about this book. Okay. He encourages Christians to build one another up. He encourages people to go into the prisons and reach out to the downtrodden, to reach out to the ill-treated. He encourages us to live at peace with one another to be upright, uh, to be hospitable, to share our possessions, uh, to honor the sanctity of marriage, to, uh, to eschew the love of money, and to be obedient to those in leadership, for example. It's, the readers appear to have doubted the fidelity and faithfulness of God. They have not trusted him in the face of persecution life has become difficult and you know like us uh, when Mm -hmm. life gets that difficult it's sometimes we lose our moorings our faith mooring and and the writer is trying to build that up and trying to say don't lose your confidence in god because he alone is the source of your life he alone is the source of your love he is your reason for living and he is the he is the one and only. He is uh, the be all and end all. Trust in him. Hmm. So that would be, I would say, the overarching main message. This call to love, hmm. this call to believe, this call to trust, no matter what.
0: Uh, is this, you know, there are many different types, styles of, of writing in the Bible. Mm. Where does yeah. this fall? It's not prophetic, it's not historical, it's not poetic. It's
1: discourse, isn't mm. it? More, more particularly, it's kind of philosophical discourse. Hmm. The great intrigue of the book of Hebrews is that it is intriguing philosophically. It is a philosopher who sat down to write this, but nonetheless, one who is well-versed in Old Testament. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, there's only 13 chapters in the book, right. but they're, they're jam-packed. Unless you want to read the book at a superficial level, which many people do, by the way, and they take out the little gems. And there are so many beautiful gems in this book. Right. You take out a verse and you say, wow, that's great. You know, that will carry me through, you know. And, and I could tell you story after story of of one verse that, that impacted my life. I mean, just amazingly. I mean, I've just they were life changing verses. There's no question. But but the book is much richer and deeper than just a, you know, a parade of little, you know, verses yeah. that one picks out to, you know, J.M. There, there are 13 chapters. He starts off by making a general statement in the first few verses of the, of the book. Now God has spoken to us by his son. That's the general statement. Mm. God has spoken in many and different ways in the course of human history, but in these final days, he has spoken to us by his son. That's the statement. That, that is basically the, the trumpet call of the entire book. And then he will go on in the body of the book to substantiate that. He will expand upon the Son's person, the Son's ministry. He'll talk about his power, his divinity, his majesty, his authority, his superiority, his transcendence, and and the finality of his revelation. How wonderful and amazing this Jesus Christ is, the Son of God. So those would be the particular substantiations. And then he concludes chapter 13 with what I would call the effect or the causative result of all this. So he makes a general statement that God has spoken by his son. The body of the book is a substantiation. And then at the very end, basically he ends in chapter 13 by saying that you will do his will. Hmm. That's the result of all this. Now in that opening statement, in chapter one, verses one to three, even those three verses are jam packed. We learn in the general statement that Jesus is the son. He is the creator and air. He f- shares fully in the divine nature. He is master of the universe. He provided purification for sins, and he sits in the place of honor. Now, that's amazing to be able to say that in those three verses. God has spoken to us by his Son, and he defines the Son right from the get-go. Now, chapters 1 through 7, he's going to talk about the supremacy of Christ. And that's his expansion upon the son's person. And then he's going to expand upon the son's ministry in chapters 8 through 12, when he's going to talk about not so much the supremacy of Christ as as the superiority of Christianity. So what you have here is, uh, under the supremacy of Christ, he's going to say that Jesus is superior to the prophets, to angels, to Moses, to Joshua, and to Aaron. And then when he gets turns to chapters 8 and following, he's going to talk about the superiority of Christianity in terms of how Christianity has a greater covenant than the old covenant, has a greater approach to God in chapter 9, has a greater law than the Old Testament law, chapter 10, has a greater provides a greater hope, chapters 11 and 12. And has a greater sense of worship than the old. So that takes you through these, you know, the the substantiation. And then when we get to chapter 13, you have now the standard of Christian behavior, what it means to live in love. And then the concluding benediction, which is one of the greatest, most beautiful benedictions in all the Bible. Hmm. But we should leave that to the end, shouldn't we? Yes, absolutely. Um,
0: By asserting the supremacy of Christ right from the get go, what is the writer
1: attempting to achieve? He's encouraging these Jewish readers not to revert back to Judaism. Hmm. That's that's of fundamental importance, and, and and therefore when he says that that he spoke, that God has spoken in a new way. God has spoken in many ways through history, but now in these last days, He's spoken to us by His Son. And and you know it's interesting, you know, if you break down that with that statement, you know, what you what you have here is in the old order he spoke in many ways but in the new order he spoke in one way and that's really significant Hmm. the manner in which he spoke in the old way he spoke in a variety of ways he says he spoke in many and variety of ways but the manner in the new order is he spoke in one way and he spoke in a specific way he spoke to our fathers in the past he spoke to us you see see how he's using these contrasts just in these opening verses amazing You know, he spoke to our fathers in the past. He spoke to us. In the past, he spoke by the prophets. Now he speaks to us by his son. So, I mean, it's really quite amazing how he he does all this. You know, in this opening greeting, and, and again, we don't know who it is. I suspect it's Apollos. He simply argues for the superiority of Jesus. And all the other voices that we hear and've heard and attempt to hear even nowadays, I mean, basically all these other voices clamoring for attention. Jesus eclipses them all. Hmm. He eclipses the prophets of old. He eclipses the angels, chapters two, one into two. He eclipses Moses, chapters three and four. He eclipses Joshua. He eclipses Aaron, chapters four, five, six, and seven. So the final word has come. That's the great thing jesus is greater than the prophets he's the son he's the creator he's the master of the universe basically the writer is going to identify the son and he's going to provide reasons why god has spoken to him in these last days Hmm. you know this is becoming a popular idea then to assert that the
0: old testament is no longer relevant for today is that something that the writer is trying to do
1: here no quite the contrary The Old Testament will continue to have relevance for Christians, he points out, but it it will be relevant only insofar as it points to Jesus Christ. And that's the important thing. Hmm. In other words, the Old Testament does not have relevance in its own terms. Now, there'll be some people who will take issue with me on that, but I believe as an Old Testament scholar, I would affirm that categorically. It does not have relevance on its own terms. It points to Jesus Christ in the fulfillment of Christ. That's the only thing that gives the Old Testament its, its meaning. Mm-hmm. So the Old Testament is only truly understandable only as it relates to Jesus Christ. And there is continuity between what God has spoken in the Old Testament and what he now speaks in the New Testament. So what I want to say, follow follow my logic, that just as the Old Testament cannot stand without Jesus Christ, Christ cannot be understood apart from the Old Testament. Right. <laughs> So the Old Testament gives meaning to the person and work of Jesus Christ. God has spoken in many and variety of ways to the Old Testament, says the writer. Besides verbal communication to the prophets, the priests, the elders, he speaks through events. He speaks through cultic practices. Now he's spoken to us by his son. That's the amazing thing. So what you have here is an emphasis upon the unity of revelation, the continuity of the testaments, the unity of the Godhead, and the superiority of Christ. Hmm. So the Old Testament is vital. You cannot fully understand Jesus Christ apart from the Old Testament. Yeah. Just can't do it. People will talk in terms of two epochs, even you know, an epoch of law and an epoch of grace. It's a yeah. great bunch of rubbish. It might be better to be to call the the older Testament and the newer Testament.
0: Hmm. Well, you've said uh, the first section of the book, chapters one through seven, do have to do with the superiority of Christ over prophets and angels and Moses, Joshua, Aaron. Can you unpack that a bit? Why was it so important to emphasize his supremacy?
1: It's important to understand that Jesus is greater than anyone who came before him. Hmm. And therefore, his revelation is the final and most full of all revelations in chapter one the the writer here makes the point that Jesus is superior to the angels in his divinity and in chapter two superior to them in his hum- humanity and let me try to explain that in his divinity he is the son he is the creator he's not the creature the, the the angels are the creature and therefore he is the object of worship. he's the one who sits with God right the angels do not. So he's greater than the angels in his divinity. But in his humanity, he achieved in the flesh what humankind failed to achieve. Hmm. By becoming a human being, he. He redeemed humanity. He brought salvation to humankind. He broke the power of death. He removed its fear. He transformed the human predicament. He made it possible that we could be right with God. And the writer stresses each time that we need to give particular attention to that, which is quite really amazing. Let this inform your thinking, the writer says. Let this inform your behavior, that he was able to achieve what no one else could ever achieve. So that's chapters one and two. Then in chapters three and four, he emphasizes his superiority over Moses and Joshua. And he does that by basically saying that neither Moses nor Joshua really succeeded in leading Israel into the promised land. And, And we know that's true because, you know, the nation was always in rebellion, always in unbelief, always in disobedience. They were remanded for 40 years of wilderness wandering. They never enjoyed the rest that God wanted for them. And so the writer said, don't you fall into the same trap. Don't succumb to the same fate. Don't harden your hearts. He says it three times, in fact. Don't harden your hearts. Because that promise of rest is still there, Hmm. greater than the rest that Moses and Joshua attempted. And the only way that can be achieved is if you come into faith with Jesus Christ. And, you know, you've got when we talk about rest, I mean, there's great debate over what that means, but it seems to me it's twofold thing. It's immediate rest and it's eternal rest. It's that kind of, you know, rest that we can already achieve in this life. The fact that a Christian can live at peace in turbulent times is a great credit to Jesus Christ. You know, that there's no fear. You know, while the world may be panicking about something or other, the Christian can live above it all without being in fear. He can live at peace. He has experienced this rest that remains for the people of God. And then, of course, there is the rest yet to be enjoyed when we pass through the gate of death. Mm -hmm. So that would be chapters three and four. And then in four and five, he goes on to argue that Jesus is greater than Aaron. He begins to introduce us to the major theme of the book, which is the high priestly role of Jesus which is better than all other priesthoods and, and the priesthood of Aaron and the priesthood of Levi and, and such.
0: Is this more significant?
1: It is, in fact. The, the writer has already hinted at it in chapters two and three. And now he's going to enlarge upon it. He's going to expand upon it. He's going to compare the priesthood of Jesus... With the priesthood of Aaron. Now, you know, when, when I talk to some of my friends and, and and family members and so forth, they're kind of, you know, and I, I try to say this is important. They kind of look at me like I've got two heads on, you know, uh, they, they, they don't see why is this important. But theologically, it's very important. Jesus is better than Aaron. His priestly role is better. Now, when we say better, by the way, we're saying more effective. We really are saying it's more effective. And he's comparing the two. He's saying that the Aaronite priesthood was called into being by the command of God, but Jesus was appointed by God himself. That the priests in the old order, they were a bunch of sinners. Christ was sinless. They had to make atonement for their own sin. Jesus never had to make atonement for his own sin. The, the writer makes it clear here that he passed through the heavens and yet was tempted like us. Now, interestingly Now, in what statement in that one statement, he's talking about the divine origin, passed through the heaven, yeah. and the human nature, he was tempted like us. But he passed through the heavens, his divine origin, and tempted like us, his human nature. To the end, says the writer, that we might receive mercy and find grace in times of need, chapter 4, verse 16. So the writer's clear in that he wants us to understand that Jesus belongs to a higher order of priesthood and calls that order, of course, the order of Melchizedek, a forever priest. So the Aaronite priests were the order of Levi. Christ is the order of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek was a king, and therefore his priesthood was a royal priesthood, as opposed to Levi. The interesting thing is we know very little about Melchizedek. One of the fascinating things that the writer says about Melchizedek is that he had no beginning and no ending. Right. He doesn't mean that literally, you know. It means basically that there's no genealogy. That's all it means. Oh. He was a real person. I mean, he obviously, he had a father and a mother. He, had a, he obviously had a beginning, and he died. Otherwise, he'd still be roaming about the hills of Judea or wherever, <laughs> you know. What we have here is this perpetual, this idea of, a, of an eternal, this, of a, a perpetual priesthood. So Melchizedek is not only a royal priest, but he's a perpetual priest. Now, The writer is going to carry this all through chapter seven into chapter eight, even into chapter nine. Interestingly, the section begins in chapter four, verse 14, with the statement, since we have a great high priest, Jesus, and he ends this section at the end of chapter seven, it is fitting that we have such a high priest. And that marks, those are the book ends, if you will.
0: Hmm. Well, this is a pretty deep, probably um, deeper than most want to go. Can you simplify this
1: for us? That's the challenge, isn't it? Uh Um, And I'm sure some (laughs) listeners may have tuned out by this time. Um, (laughs) Don't do that. Don't do that. (laughs) I want to say, if you look at chapter 5, verse 11, the writer actually concedes that it's difficult. These things are difficult to understand. I love it when a writer does that. The writer actually says these are difficult things to understand. Mm -hmm. And, And so I'm grateful that he says that. Uh, And and in fact, he stresses for the need for maturity in thinking as opposed to wrong thinking. Because if we're going to resist this concept, basically what he argues is we become antagonistic to the faith. And so what he's doing in these chapters in talking about Jesus as high priest, he's assuring us that God's judgment is reliable. His promise is unchangeable. That's lovely. If Jesus is the high priest, then he's altogether trustworthy. He's gone into the Holy of Holies on our behalf and and opens the way for us to go there. So his justice is reliable, his promises unchangeable, his provision possible, all because Christ opened up the way as our high priest. Hmm. In in other words, what we are does not define us. It is what we become that's important. Hmm. And what we become is evident through the office of Jesus as high priest, which gives us hope. Because Jesus Christ is high priest, we have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner shrine behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of melchizedek key is the anchor of our of our soul what a beautiful description that is of jesus christ yeah an anchor to the soul something that grounds us something that that that, that steadies us and no matter how, how the storm batters the boat on the top of the surface that anchor holds within the rock yeah. how marvelous is that you know i, I belonged to an organization growing up as a, as a youngster a teenage boy called boys brigade it was the precursor Boy Scouts and um, based upon religious principles. And we used to sing, you know, will your anchor hold in the storms of life when the breakers roar? And, you know, it's it's we have an anchor with the chorus went, that keeps the soul steadfast and sure while the billows roll, fastened to the rock that cannot move, grounded firm and deep in the Savior's love. Jesus Christ is the anchor to the soul. And that's, that's only possible, says the writer here, because he is our great high priest, because he has gone into the holy place as the great high priest on our behalf that gives us that sure foundation. Yeah. That's the beauty of this, uh, of this whole argument about uh, the priestly office.
0: That ties in so nicely to the, um, the Pentateuch, doesn't it? Our five podcasts on the Pentateuch looking back at the old testament it's another plug for the old testament too here
1: yeah (laughs) Yeah. and and of course the old testament is worth is i mean as i say you can't you can't do without it so let's talk about this character melchizedek who is this guy you really want to talk about melchizedek (laughs) you know here's what here's what here's what we know melchizedek literally means king of salem which can be interpreted, Salem is uh, the word for peace in ancient Hebrew. And so basically Melchizedek is king of peace. Hmm. By interpretation, king of righteousness, priest of the most high God. So that's what we discern from his name, Melchizedek. We know that uh, from the Old Testament, from uh, the book of Genesis, that he met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings. And he blessed Abraham and he received a tenth of all of Abraham's plunder. So that's what we know what he did. Mm -hmm. So that's his identity and his actions. Now, his circumstances, we mentioned already. The writer says he's without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. So in that sense, he resembles the Son of God. He is a a, a priest continually, if you will. So basically, here's what we discern. And, And this is fascinating. Melchizedek because of his identity is a royal represents a royal priesthood because of his actions meeting Abraham and taking the tenth he is a practicing priest and thirdly without father mother and so on he is a perpetual priest so we've got these three aspects of, you know, what we discern. But the mystery of Melchizedek, you know, we, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, you know, we, we do know he was a real person. Genesis 14 makes it very clear he was a real person. He was king of Salem, which was pre-Jerusalem, the name of Jerusalem before it became Jerusalem. And, mm. and of course, the name Jerusalem continue, contains within it the name Salem, Jerusalem. Ah. So, because he was a real person, he obviously had a mother and father. He obviously was born. He obviously died. But simply, the way we understand chapter 7, verse 3, he is without father, and mother, genealogy, is neither beginning of days nor end of life, but resembles the Son of God. He continues a priest forever. The writer is simply indicating that his genealogy is nowhere recorded. That's all it says. And that, that Melchizedek himself, royal priest, practicing priest, priest. Hmm. And therefore, likened to Christ, as, as the writer points out at the end of verse 3, resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever.
2: Hmm.
1: So what, what can we deduce from all that? We can argue that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham and Levi. Now, that makes sense, because if Abraham gave a tenth to Melchizedek, only the lesser gives to the greater. So Melchizedek must have been greater than um, Abraham. Huh. So that's that's his argument, you see. And Jesus, you see, had no claim to the priesthood. He was not born of the tribe of Levi. He was born of the tribe of Judah. So he's disqualified. Jesus is disqualified to become a priest. So the importance of this becomes clear then as, as we study chapter 7. Because salvation could never come through the Levitical priesthood. We we understand that it was an imperfect system. One would never be saved through the uh, through the priesthood, nor through the law, which appointed the priesthood. Because the Old Testament is a story of failure from beginning to end. So if that is the case, if you cannot be saved through law or priesthood, you need to change both the law and the priesthood. And so being a superior type of priesthood, Jesus can succeed in the order of Melchizedek where those in the order of Levi failed. And the writer goes on to say in chapter 7, verse 25, he makes it very clear. He says that Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him. And that's why then he ends this section in chapter 7, verse 26, by saying, this is the kind of priest that we need, because the old priest couldn't do it. Jesus Christ is the real McCoy. He's the real thing. And he had no claim for Levitical priesthood. So the appeal is a greater priesthood. And since Levi was in the bosom of Abraham, Abraham gave birth to Levi. And because Abraham paid a tithe to Melchizedek, therefore, Abraham would be superior to Levi and inferior to Melchizedek, voila, Levi would be inferior to Melchizedek. Logically, you see, you see how this yeah. this, this, this why this guy is a philosopher. You see, uh-huh. I mean, I mean, he's using pure logic here. That if Melchizedek is greater than Abraham, and Abraham is greater than mm-hmm. Levi, it follows then that, that Melchizedek must be greater than Levi. And since Melchizedek was in in the royal priesthood, a perpetual priest, a practicing priest the priest of the Most High God, and also king of of pre-Jerusalem, of Salem, then Jesus had to make his appeal to a higher order of priesthood to accomplish what the Levitical priesthood could not accomplish. Hmm. You you understand why this becomes very convoluted. (laughs) Um, But that's kind of... uh, But but I love how he ends here, you know, when he says in chapter 7, the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But Jesus holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able for all time to save those who draw near to God. See, the Old Testament priesthoods couldn't do that since he always lives to make intercession for them. So it is fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, blameless, unsustained, separated from from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Wow. Hmm. This is the kind of priest we need. That's how he. That's how he ends this section. This is. This is the guy we need. This is the guy we need. <laughs> uh, and, and and you can only make that appeal, if if it's an appeal through the order of Melchizedek. Wow.
0: So that represents the first major division of the book, chapters one through seven. This is. Uh, it's pretty intense. It's pretty heavy. Is the rest of the book easier to comprehend? Please say yes. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Yeah, you know, I mean, I told you already, Apollos is, I mean, if it was Apollos that wrote this, um, he was obviously a philosophical theologian. Right. You know, and, they, and you know there are many, many branches of theology. You know, there's dogmatic theology, philosophical theology, ecclesiastical theology, uh, biblical theology, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He was very much the philosophical theologian. And in this first section, chapters one through seven, he's declared how Christ is superior to the prophets, mm-hmm. superior to the angels superior to Moses, superior to Joshua, superior to Aaron. Now then, in the next section, he's going to basically build upon those, the, the, these theses and, those and, are... and, and draw them to an obvious consequence. That's kind of where we're going.
0: Okay, what are those then?
1: Well, if Christ is better than all those things, angels, prophets, etc., etc., then it follows that Christianity must be better than the rituals and, and, and what have you of Judaism. And in fact, what he's going to do now is he's going to tell us that that Christianity represents a more effective covenant, a more effective approach to God, a more effective law, a more effective hope, and more effective worship. So that's what he's now going to turn his attention to doing. Mm. Well, and how is it a greater or more effective covenant? Because it's based upon better promises. Um, Since we have this great high priest, we have confidence to draw near to the throne of grace, knowing that he is the one who is able to save. Nothing else before that has been able to save. He is the one who is able to save to the uttermost. So we can rest on the certainty that he is there for us, making intercession for us for as long as we need, for on the entire length of our lives, Hmm. because he is the perpetual priest. And so what the writer now is going to do, he's going to see the heavenly ministry of Jesus being more effectively than the earthly ministry of the priesthood. Now, this new covenant, by the way, is not just new with the book of Hebrews or even with the teachings of Jesus, because the new covenant is was hinted at in the Old Testament, you remember. right? Book of Jeremiah, uh, the book of Ezekiel, both of them talk about there will come a day when God will write a new covenant. So basically they were hinting, that the old covenant was ineffective; it was inadequate; it would never do the trick, and it, and it proved to be the case because people continued to disobey. And so, when we get to chapter eight, verse thirteen of Hebrews, listen, listen very clearly what what he says here. In speaking of a new covenant, he treats the first as obsolete. Now, the language there is very direct; it's obsolete. Because the new covenant is going to appeal to the heart for obedience. Now, it's interesting that in AD 70, of course, you know, the, the temple was destroyed and all the old covenant rituals ceased. Right. So there was a need for something after AD 70 anyway, but... The writer here is making it very clear that there is, there is available something that is much superior, much more effective, which is better. And it spills over into chapter 9 because the better sacrifice, based upon better promises, is now offered in a better sanctuary. What does that mean? You might recall the, uh, the Old Testament uh, cult, if you will. You've got the trappings of the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament that are clearly outlined in the book of uh, of leviticus for example and also in the book of exodus you have the construction of the tabernacle in the book of exodus and you have the use of the tabernacle in the book of of leviticus so you've got the uh, the accoutrement of the temple the inner sanctuary there's the, the, the Holy of Holies, the Holy Place. Within the Holy of Holies, you've got the Ark of the Covenant. You've got the Mercy Seat. You've got the Cherubim. In the Holy Place, you've got the laver. You know, all the different accoutrements. But the interesting thing is that, you know, as it's clear in chapter 9, verse 1, in the Old Covenant, here are the regulations for worship. The high priest could only enter the Holy of Holies once a year. Now, this is outlined in the, the opening verses of chapter 9. Only the high priest could enter the Holy of Holies. Right. Nobody else could enter. He could only enter once a year, verse 7, and he had to take blood to offer for his own sins and the sins of the people. And then the writer goes on to basically say that the Holy Spirit, in revealing the fact that there is a new access into God's presence, was not possible while they were still worshipping in the old sanctuary. While the old sanctuary was still there, while the temple was still there, whether it was there physically or whether it was there within their hearts, there could never be a a way open into the new sanctuary. So the earthly sanctuary with all its regulations and with the symbols of the present age, and what the writer's saying is they could never make you perfect. They were temporary until the new order could come. So basically all these things that we read of the tabernacle and the temple in the Old Testament were all anticipations for the new order. For something new, something different, something climactic, something wonderful that was yet to come. Hmm. So he's making it clear that all these things in the Old Testament were a foreshadowing of the new an anticipation of that which was to come. Uh, Which means that there would be a more uh, effective sacrifice that would secure eternal redemption in order that we might serve God. That's what he points out. And that there be no condemnation for the sinner. Uh, because Christ suffered for us, and he entered into the into this new sanctuary, which was the new sanctuary you see of heaven. And that made forgiveness possible. Hmm. So basically, if I were to summarize, it, this is what I would say. There's a better sanctuary, chapter 9, 23, 24. A better sacrifice, chapter 9, 25 through 28. Christ was offering himself as a sacrifice. Right. And what you have here, what the writer says is, this is what he has not done, what he has done, what he will do. What he hasn't done, verse 25, he didn't enter the earthly sanctuary. What he has done, verse 26, he entered the heavenly sanctuary. There's a the contrast. And what he is going to do in chapter, in chapter nine, verse 28, he will appear a second time. He'll come again. And his purpose, His purpose in entering the heavenly sanctuary was to put away sin. And his purpose in returning is to save those who are eagerly waiting Hmm. through the blood of Jesus Christ.
0: Just so that I can make sure that I'm understanding what we've covered up to this point is we have a more effective high priest, a more effective covenant, a more effective sanctuary, and a more effective sacrifice.
1: Yes. But chapter 10, I will speak of a, <laughs> of a greater law. But, but a wait, there's one. more. Greater, oh, <laughs> yes, there's more. Yes, the greater law, greater hope, uh, and, and in chapter 12, a greater worship.
0: Okay, well, so what is
1: the greater law in chapter 10? Well, as we've pointed out, the old law was impotent to save. And because it was impotent to save, that's why it needed to be rehearsed over and over and over again. That's why you had to keep having more sacrifices, more sacrifices, more sacrifices, more cleansing, more cleansing, more cleansing. It was a shadow of what was to come Hmm. because the writer points out, you see, it's impossible for the blood of goats and the blood of bulls to take away sin. Right. That's what he's saying. So therefore, it is necessary that the old be abolished. So that after the sacrifice of Christ, after the cross of Calvary, there was no further need for sacrifice. Hmm. Christ's sacrifice is the real deal. He did what the law could not do. The law couldn't remove sin; Jesus can remove sin. And the writer again does—he uh, uses this wonderful structural analysis, you know, that uh, that shows the contrasts between the Old Testament offerings and the offerings of Christ. Chapter 10, verses 11 and 12. You'll notice that the priests stood. Jesus sits. Mm. The priest offers day by day. Jesus offers once for all time. The priest offers the same sacrifices. Jesus offers one sacrifice. The priest cannot remove sin. The offering cannot remove sin. Jesus removes sin forever. And so you have this constant contrast in reverse order, interestingly, you see, what we call a chiastic structure. You see, the priests were not permitted to sit, but Jesus sat down for two reasons, verses 13 and 14, chapter 10. Number one, he sat down because there was nothing left for him to do. There was no need for any more sacrifice. He dealt with every form of sin, And then secondly his sacrifice guaranteed final perfection holiness and being an accomplished fact and a continuing process that's a whole other debate of course Hmm. but in chapter uh, 10 verse 10 holiness is something that is accomplished and in chapter 14 it continues we are holy and we continue being holy Whole theme, by the way, of the book of Leviticus.
0: Is there a practical takeaway from this for us?
1: Yes, I would say so. Um, Why is it important that Christianity is superior? Why is it important that Jesus is supreme over all things? Well, when we get to the end of chapter 10, I love the way the writer says, now on the basis of this, let us, let us, let us. In chapter 10, verse 22, he starts off, therefore, let us, let us with a true and sincere heart and fullness of faith sprinkled from an evil conscience with our body washed with pure water. That's the manner of our approach. Let us, let us draw near, let us draw near in the manner in which we are to draw near, sincerely, truly exercising faith, having done with evil. Being washed and cleansed, let us draw near to God. And then the next verse in chapter 10, 23, let us hold fast. You know, let us draw near, let us hold fast. What are we to hold fast to? The confession of our hope and the manner in which we are to hold fast without wavering. And why? Because he who promised is faithful. And then finally, the third, let us us consider. So you've got verses 22, 23, 24. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, let us consider. And what is it that we are to consider? We are to consider to provoke one another to love and to good works. And the manner in which we're to do it is not to forsake assembling together. Remember, this was written to the Christian community who were Jews. And he was saying, don't don't forsake the Christian assembling you know this wasn't so much about meeting every sunday per se i know it's taken that way but the context demands otherwise this means that these people were not to abandon the christian community that's the negative manner positive manner we're to provoke one another to love and good works exhorting one another to exhort one another and much more as the day approaches hmm. so i i think these are marvelous takeaways there's both a warning and encouragement here. The warning is if you turn your back on God, if you willfully live apart from Christ, if you, you will be, you will nullify the sacrifice of Christ, and therefore judgment will be yours. But here's encouragement. Despite the persecution, he urges them to endure. He urges them to be confident in the return of Christ, because he says we are not of those who shrink back and are given to destruction. But we are those who have faith, which results in the saving of our soul. Chapter 10, uh, verse uh, 39. I might just uh, read that. We are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and keep their souls. And so, what he's doing here at the end of the very last line of chapter 10, he's laying the foundation for chapter 11.
0: Well, the salad of faith.
1: Let us, let us, let us. That's good. That's good. Let us draw near. Let us hold fast. Let us consider loving each other. Good stuff.
0: It is a good salad. It is a good salad. Very healthy. I love chapter 11. That's one of my favorites. I I think it's powerful. But unfortunately, we don't often dig in as deeply as maybe we should. You've said it is about hope. uh, The most and I count myself among them would suggest it was more about faith.
1: Well, it's often called the, the, the great faith chapter of yeah. the Bible. I mean, yeah. it's, it's a glorious chapter. I mean, it is the chapter really in Hebrews that stands out above all the others, I think. But, you know, uh, yes, I, I would agree with that. And it's understandable that one says it's the great faith chapter because the word faith is mentioned some 24 times in the hmm. chapter. Yeah. But what I want to say to better understand it, properly understand it, is faith is the means but the end is hope. Hmm. And that's why it's really a chapter about hope. Now, faith is the means to get there. Now, look, if you will, at chapter uh, 11, verse one, and it says, now faith is the assurance of what? Things hoped for. Yeah. The evidence of things not seen. So The writer begins with this marvelous definition of faith. What an incredible definition it is. And then he proceeds to give examples. Now, you know, you've got um, the definition of faith and then the illustrations that basically run from verse 4 to verse 40. Uh, The word faith is used most frequently, 24 times. He uses the word better. He keeps using the same kind of phraseology about faith and and causation, and then he builds to the climax. But these illustrations, they substantiate the thesis of verse one, the assurance of things hoped for, the evidence of the conviction of things not seen, and every one of those is an illustration of that first verse. Noah, you know, experienced the flood uh, because he was assured that his family would be saved. Uh, Abraham went not knowing where he was going, that's the conviction of things not seen, because he believed that there was laid up for him an eternal sitting. That was the thing hoped for. Sarah counted God as faithful when she was promised that she would be the mother of many nations That was the conviction of things not seen, as many as the stars we read, and yet she counted him as faithful because that was what she hoped for. All these, when he gets to verse 31, all these didn't receive the promise. They greeted them from afar. There's the conviction of things not seen and the assurance of things hoped for. Isaac blessed his son, things that he hoped for. Jacob, when he was dying, had great confidence, even though he was not able to see. But these were things that he hoped for. Joseph predicted the exodus. And he told them, carry my bones, things not seen, things hoped for. Carry my bones. Hmm. And they carried those bones for 430 years and buried them in the land of Israel. Moses, choosing to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, for he esteemed the reproaches of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt. He endured as seeing him who is invisible. There's, there's, the, there's the conviction of things not seen, but the evidence of things hoped for. The crossing of the sea, the fall of Jericho, Rahab, you know, all of these and the summation of the heroes of later Israelite history, all their accomplishments and all their uh, adversities, well attested by faith, but not receive the promise because there was something better for us. Things not seen, but things hoped for. Yeah. So that's why I insist that this chapter is really a chapter about hope, because he says it right up at the very beginning. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for yeah so it's really a chapter about hope
0: it's interesting i mean it's 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 an interesting um shift in perspective uh from which to view it and and then maybe a uh, maybe a stronger encouragement in many ways because we do we lean into the things that we hope
1: for yeah i think i think that's i think that's true i mean these are powerful summary statements of of, of each of them. And this, this must must have made a special appeal to the hearts of these Jewish believers who were going through persecution. Yeah. Just right. imagine the impact of, of rehearsing all these Jewish, great Jewish heroes, you know, yeah. uh, of Abraham, of Sarah. You know, she kind of him faithful who had promised. She bore a child when she was past age. I mean, who could have conceived that at 100 years old she would bear a child? Yeah. You know, and yet God gave her the ability to conceive. And so the inability, her inability was transmuted into God's ability Mm. and the consequence that she would bear children as many as the stars of the sky and multitude, as innumerable as the sand by the seashore. There's the things hoped for. Really lovely. In verses 13 through 16, these all died in faith, not having received the promise. These are things not seen, but having seen and greeted them from afar.
0: Yeah. And so important. Hope is so critically important for us to keep on keeping on in the face of adversity, in the face of challenges.
1: Um, hope is so, so important. Yes. I mean, yeah. So the, the appeal is really to um, to persevere. Yeah. Here are the illustrations of faith. You know, seeing we are surrounded. That's how he begins chapter 12. Seeing how we are surrounded by such great a cloud of witnesses. Yeah.
0: You know. I mean, no disrespect, but to uh, to the writer, but he ends. He could have ended it right there, chapter eleven.
1: Yeah, he does because he 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 deals with suffering, you know, and and basically his message is listen. These these are great illustrations of what God has done in the lives of human beings. This is what enabled them to keep on, and you are now facing terrible consequences of being followers of Christ. Indeed, suffering and discipline, he seems to point out in chapter 12, is an inevitable consequence of being a child of God. Ah, but the rewards, you know. And basically what he's saying is, you know, keep on, keep on, hold fast, don't stop, just keep on, keep on. I, I remember a story, of one of my favorite uh, preachers, Eric Alexander from Glasgow, he spoke of a time when he was a boy and he attended Westminster Chapel in London, and the great Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones was preaching. One of the great pulpiteers of, uh, of days gone by, Martin Lloyd-Jones, and Eric said that when, that when the service was over, he came out into the narthex of the church, and Eric said he hid behind a huge curtain. He wanted to hear what the great man, this great orator, this great public persona, um, this great puppeteer would would say to people as they were leaving the church. And he stood behind the, the curtain and he just, he waited and the first people came out and Dr. Jones, uh, Welshman, by the way, you know, shook hands, this big man, he was a big man, used to be a cardiologist, shook, shook the hands of the parishioner and he said, um, now he said, God bless you, keep on, keep on. The next person came, keep on, he would say, keep on. God bless you, keep on, keep on, keep on, keep on, keep on, keep on. God bless you, <laughs> keep on, keep on, keep on. And Eric said, I didn't realize that he was so, uh, he'd, he lacked such a, f- a singular vocabulary as that he kept repeating the same thing over and over, keep on. keep on, keep on, keep on. But Eric said in later years when he became a minister himself, he said, I often remember Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones greeting his people as they left the church with this constant phrase, keep on, keep on, keep on. And he said, you know, there is no greater wish that you can wish a follower of Christ than to keep on. Mm. And I think that's, you know, that's the loveliness here. That's why I'm so glad it doesn't end in chapter 11. You know, it's, it's it's a call through everything else to keep on. And so in chapter 12, he basically tells them, lift your drooping hands, strengthen your weak knees, make straight paths for your feet. You notice, by the way, he uses hands, knees and feet, you know, get your entire body into this, he said. And then the rationale that he gives so that your feebleness is not permanent, but is healed and then then in verse 14 of chapter 12 he says keep your eye on the goal strive for peace with all men strive for holiness Uh, to the end that you will see the lord there's the rationale the command and the rationale each time you know he'll say he'll use a command and then a rationale the command lift your drooping heart strengthen your weak knees make uh, paths for your feet the rationale so that your feebleness is not permanent but healed the command Strive for peace with all men, for holiness, the rationale, so that you will see the Lord. And then in verses 15, 16, the exhortation to promote the welfare of the church. Let no one, there's the command, let no one fail to obtain the grace of God. Let no one fail to be immoral or irreligious. The rationale, so that there's no root of bitterness causing defilement. And like Esau, who sold his birthright, was deprived of the blessing. You don't want to do that. Yeah. So it's kind of, you know, it's fascinating the way um, this appeal to persevere, this appeal to this urging to keep on, to, to remain faithful to a God who is faithful to you. That's, um, that's the power of these illustrations, because God blessed them, even though they didn't receive what was promised, because God had prepared something better for us. Right. And that's amazing. Yeah. I mean, it's truly amazing. It's a call to worship, isn't it? Yes, to praise the God who uh, is just absolutely majestic and wonderful, superior to all others, Christianity superior to everything else in all the world. Hmm. Yeah, that's the case. The case for Christ and the case for Christianity and the effects of it, how we should then hold fast, how we should be encouraged, how we should keep going, how we should keep our eye on the goal, how we should love one another, how we should live our life to the fullest. Keep on. Keep on.
0: Then we have the final chapter. Let's talk about that. What, uh, what do you make of
1: this final chapter, chapter 13? Can I say something before we get into the final chapter? There's, sure. there's one little section there that's my, that actually Hebrews chapter 11 is not my favorite. I've preached many times from Hebrews 11, but it's not my favorite passage in Hebrews. My favorite passage is here in chapter 12 towards the end of the chapter, verses 18 to 29. And it's just absolutely amazing. Again, he's using, I mean, in his inimitable way, he's using this contrast. He's saying, um, you know, this is the old way to worship. Here's the new way to worship. Because you had just said, you know, this prompts worship. You know, this keep on prompts worship. And it does. So he goes right into that. I don't want us to miss that. He said, you know, negatively, he says, this is what you have not come to, and this is what you have come to. So verses 18, 19, 20, 21, this is what you've not come to, which is Sinai. You've not come to something that may be touched, a blazing fire, darkness, gloom, tempest, the trumpet sound, a voice. I mean, that was Sinai. Hmm. That was something that was unapproachable, something that was terrifying, something that that filled the participant, the spectator, with, with great fear. You've not come to that, he says. You've not come to that. What you have come to, 22, 23, 24 of the chapter, this is what you've come to. You've come to Mount Zion. <laughs> mm. And so he contrasts Mount Zion to Mount Sinai. When you come to worship, you don't go to Sinai anymore because that was unapproachable. That was, that was fearful. Right. That was terrible kind of thing, yeah. experience. No, you've come to Zion, to the city of the living God. To the heavenly Jerusalem, to festal angels, to the assembly of the firstborn, you've come to Jesus. Wow. So you see, you have earthly worship with Sinai, heavenly worship in Zion, and, and and you've come to the sprinkled blood that is more gracious than the blood of Abel. Now this is powerful, powerful stuff. You've come to the city of the living God. You've come, you've come, when you go to church, when you worship. When you worship, you come to a spiritual fellowship. Uh, You've come to a heavenly Jerusalem. You've come to an eternal fellowship. Uh, You've come to the company of festal angels. You've come to an immortal fellowship. To the assembly of the firstborn, a universal fellowship. You've come to a judge who is God, divine fellowship. You've come to the spirits of just man made perfect. Ah. You've come to a redeeming fellowship. You've come to Jesus, a forgiving fellowship. Now if we realized that every time we come to meet to worship, that's our experience. This yes. isn't just a country club on a Sunday morning. This is a fellowship that pierces heaven itself. You know, you've come to the spirit of just people made perfect. Who are they? Who are just people made perfect? We, we are all just people. That is to say, we are justified, right? Yes. Yeah. When we come to know Christ, we are justified. Yeah. But when are justified people made perfect? In glory. Yeah. So when we come together to worship, the church is, militant on earth joins with the church triumphant in heaven so when i when i meet to worship i meet with my brother who's passed on to glory my mother my father many of my dearest friends it's powerful it is an amazing an amazing truth and then of course he said so don't refuse, verse 25. Don't, don't refuse him who speaks. So how will we escape if we reject him? And so there's a warning there, you know. You've not come to Sinai, you've come to Zion. It's powerful, powerful stuff. And that contrast then continues. Uh, and then you come to chapter 13. You had asked about uh, what do you want to say about um, uh, chapter 13, uh, the last chapter? The last chapter, of course, completes the book by declaring how we should live in the light of Christ's superiority and Christianity's superiority. And it's all very, very practical stuff. You have in in first 19 verses of chapter 13, you have exhortations regarding uh, relating to the world in general and relating to the church specifically. You know, we we are to show to the world in general, we are to show hospitality, we're to minister to prisoners, we're to hold marriage and honor, we're not to be carried away with money. So those are kind of general exhortations that are for the the entire world. Um, That's how we should relate to the world. And then in relating to the church, we would want to say that um, we relate to how we relate to leadership, how we relate, relate to orthodoxy, worship. How we should be generous and, and how we should be honoring in in every um, conceivable way. So so basically what he's saying and he's using what we would call in inductive study uh, law of continuation. You know um, the exhortations: read, let brotherly love continue, let marriage be held in honor, stay free from the love of money, remember your leaders, do not be led astray, do not neglect to do good, obey your leaders, and and pray for us. So and again, he's using this cause and effect kind of structure as he uh, what we call a heartatory pr- uh, pattern, you know, let brotherly love continue. Why? Because some have entertained angels unawares. Right. Um, Remember those in prison. Why? Because also they're in the body. Are you also are in the body? Uh, let marriage be held in honor. Why? Because God will judge the immoral. Keep your life free from the love of money. Why? Because God will never fail us. Remember your leaders, why? Because Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't be led astray. Why? Because it is well the heart, um, it is strengthened. Uh, so let us go, first thirteenth chapter. Let us go forth. Why? Because here we have no continuing city. Let us continually offer up praise and thanksgiving. Why? Because such praise, such sacrifices are, are pleasing to God. Obey your leaders, why? Because they're watching, they're keeping watch over you. Um, And so on, you know, so you have these uh, this kind of this lovely uh, rationale that that he gives each time and and one who really needs to focus on each one, because each one is incredibly powerful, isn't it? In each case, there's always a directive and always a rationale. And from verse seven, of course, he speaks of the well-being of the church, especially uh, those in leadership. He specifically wants to talk about how believers need to be responsible, and how we need to live responsibly with regard to leaders and how leaders need to live responsibly. Uh, so the, the duty of the follower is to uh, remember your leaders, imitate their faith, he says in verse seven, obey them, uh, submit to them, verse 17. Don't sadden them because it's of no advantage to you if you make them sad and then the rationale and the responsibility of the leadership, they watch over your souls. They have to give an account. They should act joyfully uh, with a clear conscience, with honorable desire and so on. So, you know, he's, he constantly juxtaposes these these two things, you know, the directive on the one hand, the rationale on the other. And then he ends the chapter with the most glorious, most powerfully worded benediction in all the Bible, in my mind. May the peace of God Who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, equip you with everything good for doing his will. and May he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Hmm. And so you've got uh, the God of peace, that peace that comes to all who are justified Hmm. by the blood of the eternal covenant. That's a new power that's available to these persecuted Christians. That brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, you know, so to a new and living way, he says. Our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd, the great high priest, you see, that he refers to earlier. He talks about the indwelling life of God in worship and service, the equipping of the spirit, giving us spiritual gifts. Because we aim to please God, that which is pleasing to him, new purpose in our lives. And the eternal glory of Jesus, again, you know, ends with the superiority of Christ. These final three verses are just truly amazing a God who does this is able to do this. A God who brought Jesus from the dead is able to equip you in every good work. The God who, through Jesus, gave you the great shepherd of the sheep is able to enable you to do his will. The God who brought Jesus from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant is working in you that which is well-pleasing in sight. So, I mean, it's kind of interesting. The God who, who is able to do all these things in Jesus Christ uh, is able to do these things for you. And so it's interesting how he changes from the third person, Jesus, to the second person, you. God, who is who did this for third person, Jesus, is able to do this for second person, you. Hmm. And then, you know, the final appeal and the greeting, Timothy is when reason, I'm going to bring him with, uh, with me to see you. Greet the leaders, all the saints, those who come from Italy. Grace be with you all. Amen. And so here is a letter that was written when the wind of change was blowing. When people were wanting to revert to familiar things. People who were resisting change. People who were being threatened. When life was threatening. This is a word I think for today is it not? Yeah. You know that that when life is so uncertain and troubled and threatening and we don't know, you know, what the future may hold, there is a need to recognize that the things that need to recognize the things that can't change and embrace the things which must change grace be with all of you mm. amen
0: amen we have so many things that are going on the the need to keep on the need for hope and the need for grace thank you alan for a really truly insightful inductive look at the book of hebrews i look forward to rereading it now with all this in mind so, um, where will our next podcast take us, Alan?
1: Well, I thought from this kind of heavy theological perspective, it might be nice to do something a little lighter on the heart. So, what about the Song of Solomon? I love it. And ask the question: You know, what about love? Mm. What's love got to do with it? What's um, <laughs> what is the what is the meaning of love? What is the meaning of what is what is this love stuff? Yeah, we can have a look at that. Well, we did Ecclesiastes,
0: what is the meaning of life? We'll do Song of Solomon, what is the meaning of love? All right. Please be sure to come to us with your thoughts, comments, and questions, either on our Facebook page or directly via email at podcast at wordisout.com. Thank you for listening. We'll be back with our next podcast soon.